0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here's Nate. Proverbs 31 begins with verse 1, a statement that these are the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So, this tells us that we are shifting to another author. Chapter 30 showed us a man named Agur, and now we have the words of King Lemuel. Of course, the question is surrounding the identity of this man. We cannot know with certainty who he was. Jewish legend identifies this man as King Solomon, that this is another title for Solomon. Some associate this man with. The Edomites, some think that he was a foreign king, perhaps with Egyptian or Babylonian ties. The reality is, we actually don't know with absolute certainty. But because so much of the book is tied to Solomon, it would not be surprising if he is the author of this chapter. Now, it then says, an oracle that his mother taught him. In other words, this entire chapter is a word to the king rather than a word from the king like the rest of Proverbs. And her oracle is going to warn against sexual folly and drunkenness, and then she'll exhort him to instead choose justice and a good wife. So as you scan the pages of not only human history, but Israel's history throughout the Old Testament... It's easy to see how sexual folly and things like drunkenness, giving into the desires of the flesh, would derail so many kings. And the lack of justice and the lack of a good wife would derail so many kings. So that's where the mother is coming from with this proverb. And uh, it begins with a simple set of questions. Verse 2. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. The three repetitions of this question from the mother highlight the urgency of the exhortation. The exhortation is, don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. If you give yourself to women, that is a sure way for your... Kingly role to be destroyed. Here, this mother is strongly exhorting her son to reject the temptation that is attached to lust. Interestingly, she refers to it as, did you notice this? Giving your strength away. You know, as king, her son would be tempted to collect a harem. But we live in an era where modern men and women as well are tempted to do the same thing in the digital space, to collect a harem of images and videos and visual temptations that could harm and hurt their integrity, their walk with the Lord. And what she announces is, this is the sure way for your life to be destroyed. Your ways will be destroyed as king because sexual promiscuity has a debilitating effect on the mind. And of course, a king needs their mind for their role. So she implores her son, do not give yourself to women. It is not for kings, verse 4, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Here his mother warned of the dangers associated with wine and strong drink. So her first warning had to do with women. The second warning has to do with wine and strong drink. Now alcoholism can cause kings to forget what has been decreed and to pervert the rights of all the afflicted. It was unheard of in ancient courts to prohibit alcohol to the kings. That doesn't seem to be what she's saying, a a teetotaling perspective. Jesus, who is the king of kings, by the way, drank wine and instituted and put wine into communion. This proverb, though, is likely an attack, like the rest of the Bible, on the excessive use of alcohol. It says in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 17, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, they know how to eat. They are eating and they are drinking to strengthen themselves, to fulfill themselves so that they can do their job rather than just gorging themselves or giving themselves to drunkenness. So both of these exhortations, first about women and here about strong drink or wine, both of these exhortations seem to address the potential problem of abusing position for selfish and carnal desires. You see, the king, he could acquire a harem. The king could have whatever he wanted to drink. And so this mother understands that temptation. She says instead in verse six, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, this is a strange command biblically, if we're being honest that we must be careful with. It kind of stands out as as odd to those who are familiar with God's word because time and time again, drunkenness is prohibited and condemned and examples of drunkenness put in a negative light abound in scripture. So here you have this mother telling her kingly son, hey, give strong drink to the ones that are dying or perishing. And and give wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So here are some of the views. Well, some think that this was simply a statement about an acceptable anesthetic in that era. That they could use alcohol to numb pain when performing primitive surgeries or you know, going to their death. Others though thought that in a real straightforward way that others might use alcohol to escape but kings should not you know kind of leave that behavior to other people another view is the view that would say that this means that people suffering bodily and mentally need to forget so provide them with the remedy of alcohol that's probably the most controversial of all the potential interpretations and i don't agree with it but it's something that some people think, and then another idea about this passage would be that it is a sarcastic comment showing the king how foolish it would be to engage in drunkenness. In other words, look, you're not perishing, you're not in bitter distress. It's it's not really going to do anything. So do not give yourself to it. So I I, I think that we, we just have to be careful with the with the passage, because clearly it can't be taken to contradict the other portions of God's Word. We are to reject drunkenness even when we're bitter in soul or in poverty or perishing. Uh, Open your mouth, verse 8, for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now the destitute are those who are passing away, and the poor and needy often are translated as orphans and here the king is told by his mother to you know pay attention to these people in your kingdom now of course jesus when he came to earth he uh, exemplified this in powerful ways but he also preached this quite constantly and uh, his people after Jesus left, made it a focus of their lives to care for widows and orphans. Uh, The reality, though, is that this is best done in the response or a response to King Jesus. You see, many people in our modern era want to have the kingdom care for widows and orphans and the poor. Without the king, you know, without Jesus and his sexual ethic and the gospel and uh, the need for forgiveness of sin. Uh, but it is best to have the kingdom with the king. So here, though, this mother encourages her king's son to pay attention to those who are poor and needy. Now, in verse 10 through the end of the chapter, we have an acrostic poem. It is very famous. Each of the 22 verses in this uh, poem begin with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the interesting thing is that since it's going to describe an excellent wife, it is interesting to us that romance and love are conspicuously absent. It's, It's a real difficult thing for a westernized mind to deal with. Really, in a sense, it's advice on what a king should look for uh, in marriage. Rightly or wrongly, this was not a major value for them, the idea of romance and and love. Traditionally, this poem was recited by husbands and children at the Sabbath table on Friday night. Uh, And Christians, too, have seen this as a paradigm for godly women. And character is highlighted all Throughout the poem, it's not the only passage in God's Word that describes what a godly woman looks like, so it should not be overemphasized as such, but it does provide great help in understanding how God sees women and how a woman can bring honor and glory to God with her life. So it begins this way, verse 10 An excellent wife who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Now, for the phrase excellent wife, other translations use the phrase capable or wife of noble character or virtuous wife or a good woman. The Hebrew word speaks of military might or valor, power, strength, or nobility. The question, who can find A woman like that does not suggest that they don't exist, but that, like good men, they are a treasure, more precious, uh, it says there, than jewels. You might remember what Boaz said concerning Ruth and her reputation in Bethlehem, that she was a worthy woman. And that's the idea here. This is a worthy woman, an excellent woman. She had power, strength, nobility. No one's like her. So here's the description, verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and she will have no lack of gain. Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now throughout this whole passage, this woman's husband is only going to be mentioned three times. And here we learn at the outset that he trusts his wife. He is content the proverb tells us, with no lack of gain. In other words, he doesn't lack anything good. She greatly enriches his life. Now this might speak of mere contentment, but it seems to indicate how trustworthy this woman is in her household enterprises. We're going to see many moving parts in this family and household. and There are many moving parts in a marriage and family and household today, especially in As we'll see in this woman's a large and successful one so her trustworthiness is a huge blessing to her spouse this speaks of the shoulder-to-shoulder part of the marital relationship as much of this chapter does there are parts of marriage that are face to face you know interacting with each other romance together that would be what you would find in the Song of Solomon Here in Proverbs 31, it's a little bit more of a back to back, you know, fighting for the same things or shoulder to shoulder working on life together, that part of the marriage relationship. And what it tells us here is that she does him good. Good comes into the husband's life as a result of being married to this woman. She seeks, verse 13, wool and flax and works with willing hands. Now, Here, what it's saying is that she will catalog the activity of a large household, which requires supervision, and which she gives. You know, she works with willing hands. She seeks wool and flax, uh, which come from linen, and she uses them to close her family. So she industriously sought out the needs of her household. You know, the believing woman, in a similar way, is willing to work with her hands physically and spiritually to clothe those that she is responsible for. So physical clothing, to be sure, in the proverb, but also to help people become clothed in a spiritual sense. She is like, verse 14, the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Uh, The ships of the merchant would bring in wide and varied supplies and imports. The items they brought were often fascinating and interesting, and this woman is like that in that she brings her food from afar she creatively considers her responsibilities now instead of just focusing on the fact that she you know was good at grocery shopping or something like that maybe we could take it this way she does not get into a dull routine she spiritually and physically feeds the people in her life she rises verse 15 while well, it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. In other words, she's a sacrificial woman because she gets up while it is yet night in order to get her responsibilities cared for. She considers a field, verse 16, and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So she has a, a strategic mind. She's a sharp woman. Here, it's a business mind. She considers a field. She buys it. So with that mind, she you know, is useful, you know, in the community. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. In other words, she is a strong, energetic, hard-working person. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So here, what she has is encouragement. She's encouraged by her success so she keeps on going. Do you, do you notice just some of these principles about this woman? You know, verse 15, she's sacrificial. You know, it, it takes someone who's willing to lay down their lives as Christ laid down their life. She has a, verse 16, a business mind. She's astute. She's thinking. She's processing. She's, you know, strategically moving through life. She is, verse 17, strong and energetic, a hardworking person. She's encouraged, verse 18, so she keeps on going. These are beautiful attributes. Verse 19, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Now, this is some type of reference to spinning and weaving. The distaff seems to be the straight rod. The spindle seems to be the circular uh, part. And so the idea here is that she is putting together. She is, she is weaving. She takes the spindle in her right hand and she twists it and twists the thread while she holds the distaff and the wool or the flax is rolled. And, and so she's, it's a description concerning the work that she puts in. So she sees the necessary work and she does it even if it's tedious or intricate. And believe me, every description that I read of the putting her hands to the distaff and holding the spindle, they were all tedious and intricate descriptions. And this woman is willing to do them. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. In other words, she allows her work to benefit the poor and the needy. This reminds us of women like Tabitha in the New Testament, who was willing to make garments and clothing uh, and tunics and other garments for the people that she cared for in the church, and uh, because of that great reputation, they wept for her when she died, and so Peter actually responded by praying for her, and she was risen from the grave. It was kind of one of those really unique miracles that prepared the way for the gospel to go to Cornelius, because everybody saw the power Of God upon Peter's life in that moment. But Tabitha uh, was that kind of woman, uh, willing to open her hand to the poor and reach out her hands to the needy. And uh, there is something about that that is powerful about a woman who takes upon her own shoulders a segment of the hurt and broken population around her. Verse 21. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Here we see that she is prepared for the future. Uh, she's, she's not afraid of snow that's coming. She has thought about the future. She has prepared her household for the things that are coming. And uh, this is a beautiful attribute. She is not just responding to life as it comes, but she is prepared and preparing for life Uh, before it comes. She is working and building and preparing for the future. She makes, verse 22, bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, here, it's interesting because she's not rebuked for this particular luxury, the luxury of having fine linen and purple. Part of the reason that she's not rebuked for it is because she's clearly a very generous person and this is fascinating when you consider this woman because though she is able to be a blessing to the poor and the needy though she is able to minister to the widow and the orphan at the same time she also is a woman of abundance this is fascinating to me because it is very rare to find a person who is able to maintain godliness amongst all cultures and classes of people. Someone who, like Jesus, is comfortable with the elite and with the forgotten and downtrodden of a culture. And this woman, she had that. She uh, was able to exist and live in both worlds. Her husband, verse 23, is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, this is not a digression regarding her husband. In other words, we're not reading about this woman and then all of a sudden get to a place where we're going to learn about her husband, but an enhancement of who she is uh, or our understanding of who she is. Uh, she builds up her husband's position. That's how he's gotten into the gate. So because of her, he has become the best version of himself, so he is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, the idea is that she had something to do with his great success. And uh, this is one of the secrets so often of a great man who is not only great positionally, but also is great in character, is that his wife has helped him become that way uh, more often than not. Uh, Like the old adage says, behind every uh, good man is a great woman. Now, it says in verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So here we learn she was industrious and planned and hardworking, uh, which, of course, the gospel produces. And when you go back to the churches that Paul ministered to, one that you have to consider with this proverb is Lydia in Philippi, who became a great financier of Paul's missionary ministry throughout the world. And part of the way that she did that was just what it says here in verse 24. She sold garments or she sold fabric, material, and that business helped fund uh, much of Paul's missionary work. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She is, in other words, so prepared for the future by her strength and by her dignity. You see, it takes strength to work hard for tomorrow, today. It takes strength to delay gratification. But with that strength and dignity, she was able to do it so she could laugh at the time to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now, at this point, nothing has been said about her speech. But here we learn that when she speaks, she teaches with wisdom and with kindness. In other words, her content, wisdom, and her delivery is kindness are on point they're perfect they they work well together and of course when we think about how to interact with people we understand that we need both to have wisdom is one thing but if you do not if you're unable to deliver that wisdom in a way that people will receive from then your wisdom will fall on deaf ears but if you have only kindness without anything to say then Although you might be pleasing to be around, uh, you're not going to make much of a difference. What we need is the wisdom with the kindness in order to be effective. And she had both. She looked, verse 27, well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, she is an active and hard-working woman. I love the way the message translation renders this verse. It says, she keeps an eye on everyone in her household and keeps them all busy and productive. You know, in the New Testament, we do see this same principle reiterated uh, in First Timothy to the church. Paul, for that era, uh, had given a requirement that the church should take care of widows. That is something that churches should you know, be a part of even in our modern era. But he had a commandment for that era saying, but she can't be less than 60 years of age and she has to have had a reputation for good works, having brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. First Timothy 5 verse 9 and 10. So in that era, in the New Testament era, the hard-working woman is praised. Also, when you read First and Second Thessalonians, although it is not the main thrust of those letters, there is a common thread throughout both of the letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church about laziness. And he said in Second Thessalonians 3 verse 6, he said, We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Here, this woman, in Proverbs 31, will not give herself to a life of idleness. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. She is a woman who is worthy of praise. At the end, she is praised. But I think what we would all say is, but she ought to be praised during the work as well, not only at the end but also during the work, charm is deceitful, verse thirty, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. she is just an amazing woman there's charm is can be deceitful beauty can be it is vain it's it's not really the significant thing, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What an important verse. In a culture like ours that is so wrapped up in the vain things of external appeal and looks, this woman has incredible character. Give her, verse 31, the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She is worthy of uncharacteristic praise in the gates. So these virtues of this noble woman are extolled all throughout the book of Proverbs. It's not like these are new concepts held here at the the very end, but just framed in a slightly different way at the conclusion of Proverbs. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.